Alright, so if it was not daunting enough to be covering the entirety of sort of Greek cultural history and Roman cultural history in three lectures, here we are faced with how to do Christianity in one. Ah, oh, man, there's just so much and too much. Like, this is one of my real areas of expertise um, as far as these things go. And, and I come at this subject from a fairly unique perspective. Um, like, first of all, first and foremost, I teach this as a Christian. Like, I am myself a Christian. I believe in a lot of this stuff. Um, so you should know that going in. But I've also, like, come by my Christianity fairly through backdoor channels. Um, I've studied the Bible from the perspective of atheists uh, when I was an undergrad and I was learning this stuff for the sake of learning it about literature. Um, I studied this from the perspective of the Catholics uh, when I was doing my master's in philosophy and I was working at Boston College, um, which is a very Catholic, Catholic university. Um, and then I've studied it under the guidance of really hardcore conservative um, Baptist evangelicals um, when I spent three years in seminary. Uh, I did not, in fact, become ordained uh, like many before me. I very much did not agree with my professors and found a lot of differences between what I believed and what they believed. Um, and that's kind of what I want to stress here. Um, you can study Christianity from a variety of perspectives and come away with a variety of different understandings. Uh, Christians do not agree with Christians about how the Bible is supposed to be interpreted or how it's supposed to work. Christians do not agree with atheists about how it's supposed to work. Atheists do not agree with atheists about how, like, it's just a giant mess. Um, so let me start by warning you that if you do in fact go into any study of theology or the Bible generally, you are likely to find a giant mess awaiting you. Um, and part of the reason is because this is just serious to everyone. Like, for Christians, their souls are on the line. Um, believing in the Bible and reading it properly is the difference between eternal life and eternal damnation in many cases. Um, likewise, for atheists, it's kind of the same thing. Like, they're out to prove that their eternal salvation is not on the line. Um, and that, therefore, the Bible is the product of, you know, flawed humans writing stuff out of nothing for, for generations. Um, so there's no such thing as an unbiased scholar of bibli biblical studies, I should say. Um, you cannot come at this neutrally, the way that we kind of do when it comes to Greek and Roman mythology. Either you're in, in which case you are a believer and you agree with what the Bible has to say and you largely stand up for like the integrity of the Bible or at least the authority of the Bible, um, or you are not in, you are opposed to what it teaches. Um, you do not think it is authoritative and therefore you disagree with what it has to say and your scholarship exists outside of what it has to say um and that's a real tough line to walk um like it's tough for me to present this material to you because you know i will have a bias even if i was an atheist i would have a bias like there's no way around that um and necessarily i will only be speaking to certain perspectives about this text um, now, we've talked about a little bit before, thank heavens, like at least I get that much of a leg up. Um, we've talked about Genesis 1, we've talked about Genesis 2 and 3, we've talked about the story of Noah, um, and now here we are, you've read a decent chunk of the story of Abraham and a decent chunk of the story of Moses and the Exodus. Um, so there are sort of three goals 
to what I'm trying to sort of explain and present to you in this lecture. Um, first and foremost, like the other identity myths we've been studying, I want to explain to you how Jews and Christians see themselves according to the myths and the stories that are presented here in the Bible. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, we have Judaism and the way that Judaism sees itself as viewed through the lens of Exodus, through the lens of the law, um, through the lens of the rest of the Old Testament, which we didn't read in this class, which we will like briefly go over, um, as well as how the Christians see themselves, both from the perspective of the Jewish myths, the Exodus, the law, the rest of the Old Testament, but also the New Testament and how that changes things. Um, which brings us to the second thing we need to understand. Like we need to see where everybody values themselves. It's kind of the goal. But as a result, we also need to cover the actual material itself. We have to get to the content. We have to talk about what Judaism is and what Christianity is in order to talk about how Jews and Christians see themselves in order to talk about how they, and this is our third point, contrast with the Greek and the other pagan traditions that we see here. Um, so we need to do all of these things. And we also, if we can, should talk about how that looks from a modern perspective. Um, one of the reasons why I insist on doing a day on Christianity and Judaism in all of my classes, and I mean all of my classes, like my philosophy students have one of these days as well, where we sit down and this semester we are in fact reading the same chunk of Exodus, or at least a good bit of the same chunk of Exodus. It's a little spottier. Um, but even when I don't teach Exodus, I teach Ecclesiastes and we spend a day talking about how the Bible works. Um, and part of the reason for that is because just nobody knows this stuff. Like, I'm shocked by how few people know this stuff. Like, as a Christian invested in my church and, you know, hearing from my pastor all the time that we need to, like, make sure and go out and evangelize, it is frankly shocking to me how few people know, you know, what this book actually teaches. And that just, and that doesn't just mean, like, atheists. Like, if you were sitting in the back of the class thinking to myself, you know, this does not matter to you, it does not apply whatsoever because you are not a believer, you know, that's one thing. And hopefully I will dispel you of that conviction because, surprise, Christianity definitely informs a lot of what we believe today, atheists or otherwise. Um, but also, like, tons of Christians, Catholics and Protestants alike, have come to me after this class and said, you know, Professor... I never understood this material until you explained it to me. Um, like, so much of the religiousness today is circulated around, like, memorization of specific verses or, you know, the sort of integration of Christianity into Republican politics, which, P.S., is bullshit. Um, but just, it's so rare that you get a chance to see, like, the whole thing start to finish, all 1,000 pages of the Bible sort of condensed into one story, um, and that itself put into the context of everything else that we've been talking about with the Roman Empire and Greece and sort of the trajectory of history going forward. Um, this is arguably one of the most important classes I teach, one of the most important lectures I present. Um, and it's tough, like... Again, condensing a lot of material into a very short period of time. Um, so bear with me, like, give me as much patience as you can afford, because um, this one's going to be a heavy one. 
Um, fortunately, like I said, we've already covered Genesis 1 to 3, but I do sort of want to like recap a little bit of that. The main factors, at least as far as pertains to Judaism and Christianity, um, is remember, God is a creator. He is not like one of many gods who is sort of squabbling over the fate of the universe the way that Zeus and the Pantheon are. We have one God, one creator God, that is it. Um, and remember that he's good. Like God has our best interests in mind. Um, God created the universe in seven days. He saw that it was good at every stage of the way. He wants to perfect it. But then Adam and Eve screw it up with the fall from grace. Um, the fall from the Garden of Eden by eating the fruit of the knowledge, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now they are kicked out and the world is sinful and broken and people die and it sucks. Um, life is significantly like worsened by this action. Um, and I want to put that in context, sort of as our starting point for today. Um, when Adam and Eve sin, not only is the world corrupted with sin, like now this is, you know, what Catholics and Protestants call original sin. The world is now like poisoned um, by sinfulness, but it also sets in motion the rest of the events of the Bible. Um, God is now actively working to fix this. And while, you know, you could argue like from a philosophical perspective that if God is so awesome, why doesn't he just like snap his fingers and make sin go away? Um, it's more complicated than that. We will get into the mechanics of how sin works over the course of this lecture. Um, suffice it to say that God tried pushing the restart button when he wiped out humanity, saving Noah on the ark. Um, but as I believe I mentioned in that lecture, and if not, then now is the time, Noah really screwed it up very early after this. Like Noah was probably as good a person as God could find at the time. Um, and almost immediately after they land the ark and everything goes back to like normal, like the world is no longer flooded, Noah gets like crazy drunk and apparently has sex with one of his sons, which has major far-reaching consequences across the board. Um, to give you an idea like how exactly far this reaches, um, according to the Bible, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, and each of those sons went on to found one of the major sort of like multicultural groups like basically founded the culture on a given continent um, because remember Noah's like the only person alive at this point his sons will go on to be the fathers of literally all living people today um, according to the tradition Ham who was dark-skinned is the one who slept with his father and Shem and Japheth who were very ashamed of this covered their father's nakedness and it is said at the end of this that Ham would therefore be subservient to Shem and Japheth who represent Judaism and Europeans respectively. This has been a passage used to justify slavery for thousands of years. Like you can find 19th century American slave owners justifying their practices using this passage. This, like I said, is where the rubber meets the road. This is where myth gets direct application and has influence that will last for thousands of years. Um, but moving on from that detail, which I think I've already told that story, it's all blurring together at this point. Um, I wanna move on to Abraham. Because Abraham is where the story starts to change direction. 
Um, the beginning of Genesis is basically like Adam and Eve sinned. Now the world sucks. Now it's getting worse and worse and worse. Abraham is the first indication that God has a plan to get us out of this situation. Um, and most of that plan is recounted in the passage that we read. Um, specifically, God promises Abraham that he's going to make him a father of many nations, that these, this will include a priestly nation, and that whoever blesses Abraham and his offspring will be blessed, and anyone who curses Abraham and his offspring will be cursed. It's also significant that Abraham is counted as righteous for his faith. Like, Abraham isn't a super good guy, but Abraham believes in God and takes God seriously. Um, originally in the Abraham story earlier in Genesis in the passage that we read for today, it's mentioned that Abraham lived in Ai, which is apparently a city that is within, like, the purview of the Babylonian Empire, or at least, like, the proto-Babylonian Empire, because this is really early history that we're looking at. Um, and, you know, you really can't pin down, like, if Abraham was an actual person who lived, though many of these figures that we talk about today will be more easily pinned down. At any rate, Abraham left I because God told him to, and this counts like God really respects Abraham's decision and therefore promises all of the promises that he gives him, that his descendants will number as many as the stars in the sky or the sand in the sand on the beach um and therefore he will be the father of many nations everyone who curse, curses him will be cursed everyone who blesses him will be blessed um this is the foundational like patriarch of all of the western religions and i want to stress that like this isn't just judaism we're talking about this is judaism christianity and islam all trace their history their sort of origins back to this one guy abraham um, the story goes that Abraham was promised all this stuff by God when Abraham was rather old and had no children, which, you know, Abraham is a little suspicious about this. Like God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And Abraham's like, dude, I have no kids. God's like, it's okay. I've got this. Don't worry about it. So Abraham's like, all right, fine. And some time passes and nothing happens. Like he's been sleeping with his wife, Sarah, and nothing has come of it. So he goes back to God and he's like, all right, God, so when are we, when are we getting on this father of many nations thing? And God is like, you know what? Let's make a deal. Like I'm going to divide some animals and we're going to do a proper covenant. And I'm going to walk through the covenant. I'm going to promise you again, father of many nations, everyone who blesses you will be blessed, so on and so forth. Um, all I expect from you is I want you to circumcise yourself and every male in your household. And this is where the practice of circumcision comes from. Um, and this is why many Christians and Muslims, as well as Jews, practice circumcision. They see themselves as all following, following from this tradition. Um, and Abraham does this, and fine, now we've got another deal. But he waits a little while longer, and there's still no kid. So he's like, God, when is the kid coming? And God's like, don't worry about it. I've got this. So Abraham's like, all right. And eventually Sarah goes through menopause. Like she loses the ability to have children. So God goes, so Abraham goes back to God and he's like, all right, so our window closed on this one. Like she can't have kids anymore. Um, so we're kind of done with the many nations plan, right? And God's like, no, we're still on for the many nations plan. Don't worry about it. I've got this. And Abraham's like, okay. So at this point, Sarah gets wise and Sarah says, hey, why don't we just like start on this project ourselves? I've got this handmaiden, Hagar. She's nice to look at. Why don't you go in unto her in the biblical sense? 
have a kid and we'll start this process off right. Abraham's like, all right, deal. So he sleeps with Hagar. They have a kid, Ishmael. And Abraham goes to God and says, hey, we've started on the Many Nations project. I've got a son, Ishmael. This is how we're going to start this father of many nations thing. And God is like, nope, not the kid. And Abraham is like, what? Sarah can't have kids. And you're telling me that this is not the, the chosen son, the, the one who will be the father of many nations and blessings and curses. And, and God's like, nope, not that one. And lo and behold, a little while later, Sarah conceives miraculously, despite the fact that she's already gone through menopause. She gives birth to a son. The son's name is Isaac. And this is apparently the chosen son. But I want to stress that it's apparently because already we're hitting major divisions and hurdles. Like everything means more than it looks like in these ancient religions. Um, Sarah will kick out Hagar as a result of this. Like when Sarah has her own son, Isaac, and she sees that Ishmael is still hanging around and getting attention, she gets jealous and she wants Hagar and to take her bratty little Ishmael and go away. So Sarah prevails upon Abraham and Abraham casts her out and Hagar is wandering over the wilderness with no hope of survival with her son when God comes to her and says, hey, tell you what, that was a raw deal, kind of sucked, not denying it, but it's okay because I'm here and I'm going to bless you and you are also going to be a great nation in your own right. And this is where the Arab nation draws its descendants from. All the Arab peoples draw their succession from Ishmael. But what's more, the Quran tells this story a little differently. And according to the Quran, Ishmael is the chosen son, not Isaac. So once again, the Quran and all of Islam draws its sort of religious succession from Ishmael and from this story, from Abraham. They just see that it was the other son who was the chosen one. Um, but for our purposes, because we're trying to get at Christianity and Judaism specifically as sort of like the foundation of Western religion, um, we'll get back to Islam eventually, I hope. Um, we're going to follow and take the Jews for the, take the way the Jews understand it for granted. Isaac will be the chosen son going forward for us. Um, cause that's the way that the Bible, like the old Testament, Genesis and Exodus and so on will tell it. Um, so we get this incident that we read about where Abraham takes Isaac, the chosen son, the one hope of him fulfilling his destiny to the mountain as God demands, he prepares to sacrifice him and doesn't have to. Um, which you'll note, like, this is a weird scenario that God has sort of posed. Um, like, here God has said, you know, Isaac is the chosen son. This is, you know, the promise being fulfilled. Like, everything that Abraham had hoped for that God had promised is coming to fact. And now God says, all right, now sacrifice it. Like, destroy all of this. Um, and while this is kind of cryptic and doesn't seem to make sense here, a lot of interpretations will get layered onto this to make it make sense in the context. Um, the suggestion, as we should be reading with, like, in the light of the Passover celebration at the end of the passage we read from Exodus, is that God requires sacrifice. Um, the message we're going to get eventually, overall, is that sin requires sacrifice, death. The only way to overcome the sinfulness of the world is through death and sacrifice. Remember that when Adam and Eve sin originally, they're told, do not eat from this tree or you will die. And they do die. 
Like, it takes a while. It's, they're like 900 years old when they die, according to the Bible, but nonetheless die they do. Um, they would not have died as long as they just hung out in the Garden of Eden eating from the Tree of Life. Now they will. And every human being born after this will also die. Um, including Noah and his family, including Abraham and his family. Um, so death is the natural result of sin in some sense. Now, as it happens, Isaac gives birth to two kids, Jacob and Esau. They fight over their inheritance. Jacob is ultimately the one who will become the father of the Jewish people. He takes the name Israel to just, like, drive that home. Like, this is why the Hebrews call themselves the Israelites. Um, this is why they are known as Israel. Through a succession of strange events, they ultimately get relocated to Egypt. Um, there's a famine on, and Egypt is the place where there's all this food, largely because one of Jacob's sons has been sort of engineering the thing. Long story, not getting into it here. Suffice it to say that Jacob and company make it to, to uh, Egypt, um, and the relations start cordially. Like, J Jacob's son Joseph is a, like, really important advisor to Pharaoh when they first move in, so they are sort of, like, important and respected and protected. Um, but as happens, while they're dwelling in Egypt for hundreds of years, they fall out of favor and the Pharaohs forget the significance that Joseph had once upon a time. Hence why our pharaoh here starts off his career by saying that he's going to systematically kill the firstborn son born to all the Hebrews. Um, at this point, he's more worried that the Hebrews are going to revolt. They are practically slaves at this point in time. Um, and they have gotten powerful and numerous, and we don't like this. So pharaoh kills off all the babies. That's where things start to kick off here. Um, now, obviously, the one baby who doesn't die is Moses. Moses, in a weirdly similar to the Roman origin story, gets floated down the river on a basket. Only Pharaoh's daughter picks him up, adopts him, and now he's part of the royal family. Only shortly after that, as he's growing up, he kills a Egyptian who is like beating in a Hebrew slave um, for this murder. He is run out of the city and he goes into exile. Um, he becomes a shepherd working for some of his distant family members out in roughly the region of Canaan. Um, and in the process, he meets the burning bush. Um, and this is the first of our mythic supernatural activities here. Um, the burning bush is a huge moment in the history of Judaism and Christianity. It is like all of this time, God has been talking primarily through intermediaries or so far back in time that we don't remember it. Um, like he was totally talking to Adam and Eve, but nobody remembers Adam and Eve. That was thousands of years ago at this point. Um, he hung out with Abraham and seemed to talk to him, but Abraham was also hundreds of years ago at this point. Um, this kicks off the moment of God's revelation to of himself to Moses and therefore by proxy to the rest of the Israelite people. Moses is the single most important prophet in the Israelite tradition. And unlike many of the mythic figures in ancient Greek mythology, like while there probably was an actual Theseus and probably was an actual Heracles and who knows, um, like probably was an actual Achilles and Agamemnon and Hector and so on, it's usually in a sort of like religious or sort of ritualized role rather than an actual person that they are celebrating. Um, Moses is more than that. Moses, as far as the Israelites are concerned, was totally a historical person. 
Um, the miracles he performs are not something that he does himself, but as God emphasizes in the burning bush, stuff that God does using Moses as sort of like an intermediary. Like Moses cannot just throw staves on the ground and turn them into snakes. That's God's power working through him. Um, and once again, you should notice that like God does not give us demigods the way that Zeus and Aphrodite and Ares and company all do in the Greek and Roman myths. Um, all of the powerful things that happen, all of the miracles that occur, um, with some very few exceptions throughout the Bible are through God's direct action in the world. Like it's God himself who is doing these things. Now, the Bible does have numerous occasions where you're going to run into like magical happenings. Like here in the Exodus, we get, you know, Moses throws a stone down or throws a staff down. It turns into a snake, but apparently Pharaoh's priests can do the same thing. Um, like this is an acknowledgement. And there are several such acknowledgements in the old Testament that there are supernatural powers at work here. The trick is God beats them all because again, God created the universe and therefore like he totally does what he wants and all the other gods are at best like weak and subservient to him. Uh, at worst, they're just like fictions, people, gods that people made up with out of wooden stone and stuff. Um, but the Bible does acknowledge that there are supernatural forces out there. It just also stresses Jews aren't supposed to mess with those forces. Um, do not mess around with magic or like the supernatural realm, A, because God doesn't like it, B, because God's way better than that anyway, and C, because that will lead you into some dangerous territory that will cause you to go away from God, fall away from God. But we'll get to that momentarily. Um, so suffice it to say that Moses confronts Pharaoh with all that God has told him, says, you know, let my people go, um, we are going to go off in the wilderness. We're going to worship our own God. We're going to become our own nation again. We are going to restore and re realize the promise to Abraham of being a nation, of receiving the promised land in Israel. We're going to live there. We're going to worship God there. We're going to be the nation that everybody, you know, that God promised that we would be. And Pharaoh's like, nope, not happening. No way am I giving up my workforce for the sake of your silly God nonsense. Um, which is where we get our plagues. Um, now, I want to emphasize a few things about the plagues here and exactly how and why this is working here. Um, unlike many of the myths that we've been dealing with so far, again, this is meant to be a specific historical event, something that actually happened, something that went down, not something that you repeat over and over and over again, not a like re-realized myth um, for the sake of restoring the natural order. None of that applies here. Um, this is a one-time deal where God comes down, flexes his muscles, shows off his strength, and proves to the universe that he is God, and these are his people, and you do not mess with them, because if you do, you mess with God. Um, but also notice the specific kinds of plagues that we're dealing with here. Remember that at this point in time, we're talking about like 1500 BCE in all likelihood, though the date of the Exodus is not fixed and whether or not it actually happened is another matter. Like we can get into that later perhaps, but probably not because we're so pressed for time. Um, suffice it to say that one of the things that God is emphasizing here again in 1500 BCE is that he is the biggest game in town. 
The Egyptians are the greatest civilization of the ancient world. They are the most prosperous. They are the most powerful. Um, they are absolutely more powerful than the Babylonians. The Greeks had barely even been able to get their shit together at this point. Like the Egyptians are the most powerful people and it is assumed that because they are the most powerful people, they have the most powerful gods. The trick is when the plagues that are chosen for this particular showing of God's strength all definitively emphasize that God is more powerful than the Egyptian pantheon. Like as much as it's a, an impressive show, like water turning to blood and frogs and gnats and flies and locusts and like cattle being struck with boils and like fiery hail coming out of the sky and the sun going out for days on end, like it's a really impressive showing and it seems like we should read it just as, you know, another really awesome set of miracles, another really awesome myth. This is directed, this is polemical. God is making a point here or Moses is making a point about God or whoever is writing the Exodus in the name of Moses is making a point. Um, each of the plagues very much puts to shame one of the Egyptian gods. Um, when God turns the river to blood, it's obvious that the protectors of the river are not powerful, that they are weaker than God is. When God puts out the light, this is a direct attack on either um, like Ra, the sun god, or Atum, the god who is sort of associated with the sun that we talked about earlier in the, in the semester. Um, when God systematically kills each of the firstborn, that basically is a takedown of Osiris, who at this point is probably the most prominent of the Egyptian gods, the god of death and the underworld, the god of resurrection and rebirth who controls life and death. Like God is specifically going out of his way to say, yeah, that God sucks and that God sucks and that God sucks and oh yeah, that God sucks. And look, all of your gods are nothing in comparison to me, the one God, the God of the Israelites, the God of the Hebrews. God is basically like indicating his authority. Um, the way that it is emphasized in this text is God is way bigger than any of the Egyptian gods, than all of the Egyptian gods put together. That Pharaoh can muster all of his military and religious might and nothing happens. Um, the most powerful empire on the face of the earth is brought to its knees by a pack of slaves with their scary, powerful God. Um, that's the, the take home message here. That's what the Israelites are very much emphasizing. But notice what that means about their culture. Where the Greeks see themselves as being sort of like privy to the gods, like the Greeks see themselves as the inheritors of godly power, the offspring of you know gods joining with mortals or the heroes that they engender, where they see their cities as being founded by heroic figures, where they see themselves as being involved in the gods' schemes and plans, as being sort of like equal on some level to the point that like Athena can come to Odysseus and say, you know, I like you, like I respect you. Here we have a completely different dynamic. God picked the Israelites, not because of something that they did, but because Abraham was faithful to him. And as a result, God is basically the Israelites' big brother coming in and beating the shit out of anyone who gives them trouble. Um, this is not an equal partnership. This is not like a personal like obligation or something. This is God just picking up and saying, them, they're mine, you do not cross them or I will totally wreck you. 
Um, whether you are the most powerful nation on the earth like the Egyptians or some you know backwater nation like the Canaanites or the Philistines, doesn't matter. You mess with my people, you mess with me, and I hit back hard. Um, this is a protector relationship. And while you will see that in the Greeks and the Babylonians and many other mythic traditions, it is front and center here. Um, the Israelites are not themselves special. What their God tells them to do, they do, and as a result, God will bless and protect them. Not because of anything about the Israelites, but because that's who God is. That's what God is like. Now notice... The ultimate end of this whole Exodus narrative with all of its fancy plagues and exciting, you know, dynamic stuff ends with a festival, the Passover. And again, this is a past, this festival endures to this day, like 2000 years of history, 3,500 at most have transpired. The Passover is still regularly practiced every March or April, depending on where the moon is, um, in Jew Jewish and Christian culture for that matter. Um, this ceremony is re-performed. Again, not because it's sort of like retaining the cosmic order the way that the Greeks do, but because God told them to. This is one of the ways that the Jews demonstrate their allegiance to God. But notice also how it's sort of structured and emphasized, how God explains this ceremony, but also how Moses sort of articulates it in this text. Um, Unlike many of the plagues, which like specifically only hit Egyptians, like there's, you know, the, like the, the frogs are only in the Egyptians' houses, the, only the Egyptian cattle is getting killed by the plague, only like the Egyptian homes are destroyed by the burning hail, like the Jews seem to be immune to most of this stuff. Here we get a stipulation. Um, the firstborn son of everyone in Egypt is going to die. But the Jews can protect themselves if they follow this ceremony. If they kill a yearling lamb, like a young unblemished lamb, and they spread the blood on the doorposts and the lintel, like around the entrance to their homes. And in theory, when the angel of death walks through the city, walks through Egypt, he will pass over, skip, all of the doors with the blood on them. He will protect the Israelites, in short. Um, now... The suggestion here is similar to the one that we saw with Isaac and with Abraham earlier. Abraham is going to sacrifice his son because of the evil in the world in order to get the blessings that he has received. But ultimately, he doesn't have to. A substitution is made. Instead, a ram is presented by God to Abraham. Abraham sacrifices the ram, and therefore Isaac is spared. The suggestion is that Isaac belongs to God. For all intents and purposes, if everything was, you know, going the way that it should be, because of sin, this death is now required, Isaac belongs to God. The same thing is reemphasized here. All firstborn, anything that opens the matrix as it is placed, belongs to God. But in order to save your firstborn sons, your firstborn children, you will sacrifice a lamb instead a substitution will be made. Um, now, the Passover celebration is itself instituted not just as sort of like a reminder of this cosmic order of sin and sacrifice, but also as a reminder. The Jews are who they are because God rescued them. 
and the institution of Passover is put into place in order for the Jews to remember that they were led out of Egypt by God, their protector, who has their best interests in mind, who is governing for their good, who is bringing them back to goodness out of this evil world that has been created. Um, so they celebrate every year to this day um, the same feast, the same rules, the same unleavened bread, the same bitter herbs and spices, the same yearling lamb, um, at least so far as you can get that stuff. Um, now, after this Passover ceremony and the whole like myth of the Exodus is concluded, obviously we get the parting of the Red Sea, and then like Pharaoh is wiped out and his army is destroyed, like they're all drowned when the seas sort of close back over them. Um, but this actually starts yet another stage in this grand process, this realization of the promise to Abraham. Um, because the Israelites will be wandering through the desert for a good long while. Like, any map will show you that to get to Egypt, from Egypt to Israel, Palestine, the promised land to Abraham, um, you gotta cross the Arabian Peninsula, which is a giant pile of sand and rock and just ugly territory. Um, so the Israelites are heading across said sand and rock and ugly territory, and God basically has Moses stop over for a few weeks um, at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God gives a, or Moses the law. Um, and this is crucial to understanding the Jewish identity. Um, the Jews are who they are, not because of some quality of some racial identity, but because of the law. Like the racial identity is there and we'll come back to that, don't you worry. Um, but this comes hand in hand with what God requires of them as a people. Now the law doesn't itself like have salvation properties. Like when you typically think of like Judaism having the same binary as Christianity, where it's like if you're saved, you go to heaven, and if you're damned, you go to hell. But the Jews really don't see it that way. Um, when the Jews die, they're just dead. They go to Sheol, the underworld, which is like death. Um, they're not conscious. They're just dead, buried, gone. Like there's nothing, there's no afterlife. Um, as far as the Jews are concerned, or if there is, it's like unknown and uncertain and not good um, universally. Instead, one's legacy, one gets one's immortality through one's descendants, through the culture at large. Um, you, as a Jewish citizen, want to you know, leave, leave a mark on the world through your offspring, through your children. Um, but the law sort of puts another wrinkle on this. Specifically, the law insists that the Jews behave in a certain way. You do not get into some good or bad afterlife based on whether you or not you obey the law. Instead, this is God telling the Jews, you need to behave like this if you want to be my people. If you want to enjoy my protections. If you want to receive my blessings. Um, as long as you indicate that you are my people, I will continue to be your God, your protector, your benefactor, the person who gives you everything that you have. Um, so this is much more like flying the flag of the God that they worship than it is, you know, living up to a certain expectation in order to get some perceived benefit. This is more threat than it is promise, as far as the law is concerned. Um, but the trouble is, it immediately goes haywire. Like, as part of this law, we get the Ten Commandments, 
um, which are obviously super important and very famous. Um, you'll notice, though, if you know the Ten Commandments, the most important of those commandments regards God. Like the first four are, you will have no other gods before me, you will make no graven images, you will take you will not take the Lord's name in vain, and you will observe the Sabbath, the seventh day, when God rested after the creation. Um, all of which imply that like the primary goal of these laws is to respect, worship, and honor God so that he will continue to bestow blessings upon the Jewish people. Um, now, the trouble is, when Moses gets all these laws together, he brings them back down from the mountain only to find that while he was out like transcribing the law, the Israelites immediately built a golden calf and started worshiping it. Like they have already broken the first commandment. They have already left God behind. And we see this repeatedly throughout the rest of the book of Exodus and throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. Um, the Israelites are terrible at following God's laws. Um, they frequently backslide. They frequently sin. They frequently go and worship other gods. Like even later in the Israelite culture, when they've actually relocated to the promised land, it's like every few years, somebody has to go around and be like, all right, everybody get rid of your household gods. And like everyone begrudgingly goes back to their house and gets all their gods and removes them. Because again, God is jealous. He does not tolerate competition. No other gods before him. Um, so in a state of absolute apoplexy, Moses breaks the commandments, shouts at everyone, breaks down the idol and like destroys the gold that was used to make it like all gone. Um, and we have to start all over again, like all the way from scratch, get the laws rewritten, like the whole thing has to start all over again. Um, but this is the pattern that we're going to see. Like, even when the Israelites make it all the way up to the promised land, they're getting ready to enter the land, and they're like, uh-oh, there are big scary people there. I guess we shouldn't go in. Maybe we should run back to Egypt, where, you know, at least they fed us. And God's like, oh my gosh, you guys are the absolute worst. Why can't you just follow even the most basic of the laws here? Why can't you trust me? Like the whole point of all those plagues of the exodus of the parting of the Red Sea is God saying, I am going to take care of you. You can trust me. Like these are people who watched that happen. They literally were there for it. It's not like, you know, six generations later, you know, there are a bunch of sons and daughters who are like, eh, I don't think God is real. So no, these people watched it like fire from heaven, waves parting, manna and quail being produced from nowhere so they could eat. Like, and some, for some mad reason, they still won't trust God. Um, they've got, they take him for granted in short. Um, and over and over throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this is the pattern you will see. On the one hand, you will have like a couple of faithful people to God, but the rest of the Israelites are going to turn against him. And as a result, God will send punishments. The, fair, the, um, the Philistines will take over the Israelites. The Canaanites will take over the Israelites. The Babylonians will take over the Israelites. They will destroy their cities and put down their empire. They will kill their kings and like carry off their men and women. And the people will cry out, Oh no, God, save us! And God will save them. 
And then they'll be faithful for a little while, but eventually they'll fall into bad habits again, and eventually another cycle of punishment will begin. Like, over and over. You read the rest of the Old Testament, it's literally this, over and over and over again. They make it to the promised land, but they don't follow all the rules, and as a result, they don't manage to take all the territory they were promised. In the Judges, you've got multiple cycles of judges rising up to lead the people, protecting them with God's power, and then letting them go, and they immediately backslide, and it's like a generation later, there's another judge that they're calling for to save them from their sin. Um, this is how sin works as far as both the Jews and the Christians are concerned. It is inevitable. It is cyclical. You cannot save yourself from sin. You have the system of sacrifice in place to protect you, but when you fail to observe it or when you fail to observe the other laws that God has put in place, God leaves you susceptible to outside forces other gods, other nations, other peoples who take over the Jewish people and scatter them to the four winds at the very end of the day. Um, now, in this system, in this sort of legal system, God also puts in place other sacrifice systems um, and through Leviticus and the other books of the, of the Pentateuch um, to sort of set out how sin will actually work. Specifically, there are like two ceremonies that are really important for dealing with sin. On the one hand is the sin offering. Like if you have committed a particularly egregious sin or, you know, any sin whatsoever, technically they're all egregious. If you were going to perform a sin offering, you place your hand on the animal that is about to be sacrificed, the ox, the lamb, or whatever it is that you can afford, and you transfer, like ritually transfer your sin to the animal, and then the animal is killed. Um, in this case, you do not eat the food. You do not like enjoy any of the benefits. This animal is cursed. It is corrupt. It is dead. If you eat it, you will become sinful again, at least in theory. Like this is not explicitly laid out, but the implication is very clearly there. Um, but the important thing is the transfer. You place your sin in the animal. The animal dies for your transgressions, much like the Passover lamb dies for the sake of your firstborn child. Um, in both cases, they belong to God. They are going to die. They are not yours anymore. Um, you pass your sin into the animal. It is killed on your behalf. Um, it's even more stressed in the Day of Atonement. Um, Yom Kippur, the big festival, arguably the most important of all of the re religious festivals among the Jews. Um, in this case, the entire nation sort of ritually places their sin on a goat and the goat is led out of the camp while they're camping or out of the city while they've landed in Jerusalem, slaughtered ritually there, and then the blood is brought back to the temple to be sacrificed to be expatiated by God. Um, the emphasis throughout is that God is holy. Humans are not holy. And as a result, humans have to constantly sort of reaffirm, re ritually reenact their holiness in order to be right with God and in order for God not to abandon them to the, their sins and the consequences of their sins. God is sacred. If you want God's protection, you have to act sacred and cleanse yourself of your transgressions at every stage of the way, repeatedly, cyclically. Um... And this goes through a lot of history. Like, if we assume that the Exodus took place again around 1500 BCE, I'll go again, we do not have a date, it is not clear. There is no obvious, like, Egyptian records 
of a historical variety that like line up with the events of the Exodus, it is not entirely sure whether the Exodus happened, and most scholars will argue that it didn't, or if it did, it was in a very different way from how the Bible records it. Um, again, this is where sort of atheist and Christian scholars are going to butt heads and disagree. Um, for our purposes, let us just accept it as myth and go forward. Um, from the time of the Exodus forward, like this covers a lot of changes in Israelite history. Um, the Israelites do in fact take over a decent chunk of the promised land. They settle there. They live there for a while. Eventually they found, find, they like name a king, first Saul and then David, the good king, as recorded in first and second Samuel. Um, God blesses David, the good king, but David is not perfect. He also sins. And as a result, the nation is divided. Um, but the Israelites interpret their history according to this model. Every king they have is either a good king because they followed God and they followed the law and they like made a, the citizens follow the law as well or a bad king because they did not honor God. They did not observe the law. They did not have the people follow the law. And instead they, res they brought up new gods or erected sort of like holy places to other gods. They fell away and worshiped Canaanite gods or Babylonian gods. Um, and as a result, all of these bad kings will lead the Israelites into trouble. Bad kings mean war, good kings mean peace. All because of what they are doing with God. When good kings backslide, it means war. Um, and eventually, this sort of tendency of the entire Jewish understanding of their own monarchy is that it is getting worse and worse. Like, the Jewish faith in God is gradually falling apart. Um, and by 500 BCE, it's gotten so bad that the prophets are now saying that God is going to let Babylon conquer them. Um, the, the entire Jewish people is going to just get, like, wiped out. Not utterly annihilated, but the Jewish land is going to be conquered. The Jewish temple is going to get thrown down. The Jewish monarchy is going to be scattered and destroyed. Um, they will no longer, like, proceed from the line of David. Or if they do, it'll be unknown. Um, and this is what happens. Um, when Babylon is going on its empire-building spree around 5-600 BCE, they take over Judea. Um, they add it to their conquests. They carry off the Jewish men and women to Babylon to be servants and slaves. Um, and they basically incorporate Judea as part of the, em the empire. Um, Jerusalem itself, their walls are destroyed. Their uh, temple is destroyed. And all of their treasures are basically sacked, carried off to Babylon as well. Whole place is looted. Um, and this marks an end of the Jewish sort of self-determination. Um, only to be interrupted again when Cyrus the Great sweeps through and conquers Babylon as part of his conquests for the Persian Empire. Yes, the exact same Cyrus the Great who is like grandfather of Xerxes, the guy who the Greeks are going to beat up. Um, this is where the Jews identify their role in history. Eventually they are liberated, they get to go back to Jerusalem, they get to rebuild when Cyrus the Great liberates them from the Babylonians. Um, under the Persian Empire they tend to be fairly autonomous and they tend to thrive, but then the Greeks take over in the process of Hellenism and they don't like that one bit. Um, this is where a whole bunch of Jewish revolts start to take place. 
Um, and remember, like the, the Greek model is sort of modeled after the Persians insofar as like it's one central government that sort of taxes and runs all of the tributary nations. But unlike the Persians, the Greek culture is sort of imposed on the Jews and they don't like it one bit. So when Alexander and his successors, the Ptolemaics, like erect statues of Zeus in the Jewish temple, remember the first commandment is you will have no other gods before God. This is a blasphemy. And the Jews won't have it. So the Jews, led by the Maccabees, the priests at the time, rise up against the Greeks and they basically declare war against them. And weirdly, they win. Like, crazy as it may sound, they overthrow the Ptolemaics who are running the show um, and they achieve their autonomy for at least a little while longer. A se sequence of Maccabean kings will rule in Jerusalem for another 150 years or so, um, only to be once again taken over by the Romans. Um, which, once again, you have the same conflicts. Now, re specifically regarding the Roman occupation of Jerusalem, because this is where things are going to get really important and exciting again, um, this especially chafes with the Jewish people. Um, not just because of the God thing, but because the Romans are a little bit more hands-on about their government policy um, than at least the Persians were, probably about on par as the Greeks. Um, but when the Romans basically like install a legion in Judea, like the, the Jews are mortified, disgusted, like this is unacceptable. Um, one of the major series of Jewish laws has to do with cleanliness. And one of the key rules about cleanliness is that you cannot hang out with, you cannot touch, you cannot like be in the same room as, you cannot be in a room owned by a Gentile, a non-Jew. So, you know, this means that just like a legionnaire bumping into a Jewish citizen on the street means that the Jewish citizen now is ritually unclean and has to go bathe and go to the temple and do all this stuff. It's a huge irritation. Um, the other thing is at this point, the Jews are scattered. Like after the, the Babylonian conquest and their exile, after the various Ptolemaic kings were like kicking out Jewish um, dissenters, there are Jews all over the Roman world. Um, in almost every Roman city, there are there is a Jewish population. It's more than just Judea at this point. Um, the Jews have a foothold in the Roman Empire at large. And for the most part, the Romans respect the Jews. Um, like, the Jews don't like being ruled by Rome, for sure. And Jerusalem is rising up against Rome all the time because of how irritating it is to have this sort of Roman stranglehold over what they would hope would be their autonomy. Um, but for the most part, there's like an uneasy peace between the Romans and the Jews. Um, the real issue is when Jewish national sentiment flares up, specifically around those yearly rituals. And there are a lot of them. Obviously, for the Passover celebration, everybody is supposed to come back to Jerusalem. For Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, everybody is supposed to come back to Jerusalem. All of these major national festivals, the Jews are all like crammed into one place together, and this is a hotbed for revolution. Like, it's pretty normal for there to be a revolt in Jerusalem on the day of the Passover celebration or on Yom Kippur. And as a result, the Roman authorities have to have like a sort of easy hand at the wheel on, on these days. Like the governor in Judea, the proconsulate, whoever's in charge, whoever the major figures are, they have to kind of just like cooperate with the Jewish authorities, sort of downplay their, their own power 
on those festival days or the Jews are going to rise up and there will be riots and revolutions and people will get killed. Um, this is fairly normal, like yearly or more frequently than that in particularly tumultuous times. Um, and this is when we start having Jesus conversations. Um, so as emphasized in the Crash Course video and elsewhere, the Jews also have a tradition springing back to that Babylonian exile and earlier about a Messiah. Um, some of the major Jewish prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they all talk about a savior who is coming, a Messiah, the anointed one. Um, and he will throw off the political shackles uh, inhibiting the Jewish people. They will whoever messiah is is going to lead the jews in a revolt that's going to kick the butt of whoever's in charge which during the babylonian captivity means babylon during the greek occupation means greece and during the roman occupation means caesar and the romans however the messiah prophecies are scattershot and not very easy to interpret they're frequently bound up with other prophecies that don't have anything to do with messiah or they might have something to do with messiah and we have no idea if they have to do with messiah um some of them are bound up with some of the discussions about satan who is sort of like this nigh like rival to god who apparently like fell from grace at some point um and is now waging war revolution against god and like the heavenly realm um this is a fairly late development by the way you will not find any reference to satan or lucifer or fallen angels um in the earliest of the jewish texts it typically comes from the later um Isaiah and afterwards the monarchic texts that you'll find that stuff um, but at any rate Messiah is also apparently supposed to kick Satan's butt so there's that um, but there's all of these prophecies about Messiah circulating around and people are starting to get antsy when is Messiah going to show up um, when is our Savior going to come and throw off the Roman rule throw off the Roman occupation restore Jerusalem to its glory and bring about the new Jerusalem when God will himself dwell on earth um, and directly benefit the people who worship him. Obviously, we need to talk about Jesus. Um, now, there are several people who claim to be the Messiah that kind of get thrown out during the course of Jewish history, most of which don't make too much of an impression. But every now and again, you're going to get someone who claims to be Messiah and leaves, leads a Jewish revolt against the Romans, and the Romans usually, like, quash it pretty quickly, and it's not a big deal. Um, Jesus is a bit different, though, because Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, Jesus doesn't do a lot of the things the Jews were expecting Messiah to do. Um, Jesus shows up, and he has a lot of apparent authority and power. Um, he says a lot of wise things. Um, he goes around and like makes sayings in the synagogues, the places where the Jewish Jews like collectively worship, um, or in uh, the temple itself. But he's not terribly. He's not in any hurry to beat up Romans. Like, at no point is he talking about, like, let's all pick up our swords and kill all the Romans. Let's kick them out of our land. Like, that's, that's not on his agenda, it seems. Um, instead, Jesus just collects a whole bunch of followers and goes around teaching and performing healings and other miracles, like feeding the 5,000. Um, what's more, if anything, he seems to not be in league with the Jewish religion. Um, because the people who are in charge of the Jewish faith at this time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, the guys who basically run the Sanhedrin, the, the governing body that Moses has set up 
like centuries before um they are basically having all of these disputes about like whether we should become more like modernized more greek more uh, pagan influenced in which case like the temple is no longer the center of jewish life instead like individual worship will be or the sadducees who believe that absolutely like there is no resurrection and most of these pharisee traditions are are like inventions corruptions of the original jewish tradition and jesus goes in and he hates both of them like he's dumping on the pharisees because they're hypocrites he's dumping on the sadducees because of their theology um like he he says basically all of the religious authorities at this point are full of crap which naturally does not endear him to the religious authorities um, but there's one other wrinkle in this process specifically jesus claims authority that he shouldn't be allowed to um for example uh there is a case recorded in several of the gospels i believe where jesus goes up to a man who is crippled he is lame he can't walk like his legs don't work um and this man is like lying on a, on a pallet on the side of the road and jesus comes up to him and he says your sins are forgiven and Jesus, who is almost always being followed around by his disciples and crowds and other stuff, is immediately interrupted. The Pharisees are like, dude, you can't forgive that guy's sins. Only God forgives sins. Um, God is the only one with the authority to forgive sins. You know the system. Like, you've got to, things have to die in order for sins to be forgiven. You can't just, like, say a person's sins are forgiven. And Jesus is like, which is it easier to say? That a, the guy's sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And he tells the guy, get up and walk. And this lame man miraculously gets to his feet. His crippling is now healed and he walks away. No problem. All is well. And the Pharisees are a little stumped on this one. Like, they can't perform healings like this, so you can't very well, you know, fault this guy for saying your sins are forgiven when he can also perform miracles of this magnitude. Plus, he's really popular. Like, the people love this guy. Jesus performs healings. Jesus teaches all this stuff, and the people are eating it up. And so if the Pharisees really speak out against Jesus, there's likely to be a riot. Um, but it's not just this. Jesus sort of asserts his authority by saying that he can forgive sins, but he does it even more directly elsewhere. So the Gospel of John records that, the, that Jesus is having a disagreement with the Pharisees because Jesus is like introducing all these new laws and talking about all of these new restrictions, stuff like the Sermon on the Mount where he says that, you know, it's not just adultery when you commit adultery, it's adultery when you look at a person wanting to commit adultery. Or it's not just theft when you are, you know, actively stealing from someone, but it's theft every time that you wish you could steal something. Like Jesus is all about, you know, you commit sin with your mind and your heart, not with your actions. It's the heart that Jesus wants to fix. And the Pharisees don't care for this much either. So they're like, all right, dude, you cannot go around telling people like the laws are not enough for them. Like we've already given them tons of laws. There's tons of laws in place. Who are you to assign new ones? Um, don't you know we are sons of Abraham? We inherited the promise. Um, as a result, like the law is important, but it is a law that we govern for ourselves, like not something that other people hold over us. And Jesus is like, sons of Abraham, dude, I could raise stones into sons of Abraham if I wanted to. Before Abraham was, I am. And if you remember, this is exactly what God takes as his name in the conversation of the burning bush with, uh, with Moses. This is a hugely important name. 
Um, like in the text, it is usually expressed, I am that I am, but really the Jewish word is just I am. Um, this is the Jewish word that you usually hear translated as Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, I typically don't like to pronounce it because the Jews have very severe restrictions over when that word can be pronounced, i.e. never, you can never pronounce it. Um, like even in the Jewish scriptures, like they do not give diacritical marks. Like all of the other words in the Jewish language, they, they're marked for where the vowels should go. But this one does not get vowel markings because you're never supposed to pronounce it. Um, it is known as the tetragrammaton, the four letter word. That's the closest you can do to talking about the word. Um, but importantly, like remember in the Ten Commandments, it says, you know, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. That's why no one's allowed to pronounce this word, for fear of taking the Lord's name in vain. And then Jesus just out and out says, not only, you know, I existed before Abraham, but I am using the name of God to express that he is. Before Abraham was, I am. He's basically asserting that he is God. He is taking that name for himself. And rightly, the Jewish the Jewish people lose their shit over this. Like they immediately bend down and pick up stones to stone him because this is the worst possible blasphemy you can commit. The whole of the Jewish religion is based around the fact that there is one God, the one God. No other gods before him. He is not one of many gods that are not like other people who get to claim that they are a god. You do not get to pretend that you're possessed by gods like the, like the Greeks do. You are not the sons of gods the way that the Greeks frequently are. You are not the son of God in the sense that uh, Caesar Augustus claims to be the son of God. Like all of that is so far out of the pale of Jewish religion that when Jesus says, I am and implies, I am God, the God, the Adonai, the Elohim, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, yes, they absolutely lose it. They're going to destroy him on the spot and rightfully so. That's what God would want, you know, if he's not God. And that's the key here. Like we talked about the split between Judaism and Islam, how Islam traces its roots back to Ishmael, not Isaac. This is the split between Christianity and Judaism. Judaism sees Jesus as a liar, as a vicious, monstrous blasphemer, someone who had no business calling himself God because nobody has any business calling himself God. Christians believe that Jesus was right, that he was God. And this is where things get confusing. Um, for Christians, Jesus is God and Jesus is Father, because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus' Father, the God of the Old Testament and indeed of the New Testament, is also God. This is the God who created the world, who will, you know, set who sets everything in motion, who provides for everyone, etc. etc. And plus bonus, the Holy Spirit is also God. This is the Trinity of the Christian theology. And yes, it is confusing, and yes, it doesn't make sense, and no, I do not have time to explain it here, unfortunately. Suffice it to say that for Christians, God the Father is God, and 100% God, and all God, and the only God, and Jesus is 100% God, and is God, and is all God, and is the only God, and the Holy Spirit is 100% God, and is God, and is all God, and is the only God, and all three of them together is God, and is all God, and is etc. It's a mess. 
not denying it. It is the product of a lot of theology and disagreement over hundreds of years of Christians trying to sort out what the heck they believe. Um, Again, we don't have time to trace that here, although we'll get a little into it down the road. What's important for our purposes is that Jesus claims that he's God and the Christians buy it. Um, it'll take a while for the Christians to buy it. They don't immediately buy it. In fact, most of them don't even understand what's going on at this point in time. Like they have no idea why Jesus can say this or how he can say this and not also be like a monster and a blasphemer, how he can perform healings and also claim to be God. They're just following, hanging on by for dear life, seeing where it takes them. Especially because it's shortly after this that Jesus dies. Um, and that just throws a whole wrench in the whole Messiah plans. Because again, everyone's sort of expecting Jesus to rise up against the Romans and kick them out and restore the Jews to their proper authority. Instead, Jesus gets captured by the Pharisees, handed over to the Romans, and crucified. Like, not just killed, but like hung on a cross. One of the most dishonorable ways of being killed. To the Jews, this makes him not just like crazy ritually unclean and also a blasphemer, but like so far from, you know, holiness that it's not even reachable there. This is why the Jews frequently write him off. He is not the Messiah. How could he be? He died on a cross. For the Christians, this indicates something else. For the Christians, Jesus' sacrifice is just another in the long tradition of substitutionary sacrifices. For the Christians, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the goat led out into the wilderness on the Day of Atonement. Jesus is a national sin offering. And frequently in Christian literature, you will see this emphasized. So for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is being cared, like brought up before Pilate, Pilate sends Jesus out to the people and he's like, all right, I, it's Passover, it's Roman tradition, we forgive a criminal on Passover, we release him back into you. Um, obviously, you're all big fans of this Jesus guy, so why don't we release Jesus? Like, we got, two, we got two convicts, we got Jesus, we got Barabbas, both are condemned to death. Which one do you want me to release? And Pilate's figuring, you know, they're going to pick Jesus, and fine, because Pilate doesn't have any beef with Jesus. Like, Jesus is a religious problem, he's obnoxious to the Pharisees. If anything, Pilate gets a kick out of that. But instead, the crowd chants, kill Jesus release Barabbas. Crucify Jesus, release Barabbas. And Pilate's like, all right, fine, whatever. Obviously, I have been manipulated, and, you know, the Pharisees have messed with the crowd. Whatever, let his blood be on your hands. And the emphasis here is that this is the transmission of sin from the crowd, from the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, to Jesus. In the same way that the sin offering works, in the same way that the Passover sacrifice works, in the same way that all of these sacrifices work. For Christians, Jesus was a blameless, sinless lamb. He was without sin, and therefore his sacrifice can serve as a sacrifice for human sin. What's more, since Jesus was God... It is a sacrifice so great and so profound and so wide-reaching that it is a once-for-all permanent sacrifice. Anyone who accepts the sacrifice of Jesus for their sins has their sins forgiven, wiped away, forgotten, and they can therefore not die and have eternal life. That's the foundational truth of what Christians believe. That is the central tenet of the gospel. Jesus died for your sins so you can have eternal life. 
But what's more, Jesus doesn't stay dead. Um, like, talking about the history and the mythology coming together on this one is very touchy because obviously people really believe that this happened, myself included. Um, and many atheist scholars draw absolutely the line at resurrection. Like, sure, maybe Jesus performed some impressive healings. Sure, maybe Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Sure, he said a lot of really good things that a lot of people respect. But at the end of the day, what he definitely didn't do is come back from the dead. No way did he get crucified and then three days rose again. But the story that we are told is that Mary and Martha, two of Jesus's sort of disciples who were hanging out with him all the time, they go to the tomb where Jesus was buried only to find that the stone has been rolling away, that the body is gone, and that there are angels standing there saying, why are you looking for him here? He has risen. What's more, multiple Jewish sources or multiple of his disciples report that they talked to Jesus and hung out with him after his death. And for 40 days, Jesus walked the earth, appeared to the disciples, appeared to a whole bunch of people in one room, according to Paul at one point, um, and that therefore Jesus had risen. Um, Jesus was resurrected. And the Christians interpret this as a sign as well. Um, if Jesus' sacrifice wiped away sin, allowed for a direct communication between God and humans because now the sin is wiped away and forgiven, the resurrection is an indication that this is not the end. That you do not die in this once, or like this is not a once for all sacrifice. This is an indication that there is life beyond death. That Jesus coming back from the grave guarantees not just forgiveness of sins, but a forgiveness of sins unto eternal life. And he's coming back. Like Jesus ascends into heaven after these 40 days. The Christians believe that Jesus is going to come back for round two. And this time it's for real. This is the point where Jesus is going to kick Satan out of the world. Deposit him in chains for a thousand years. That he will destroy all human empires devoted to evil. And basically scourge sin out of the world. There'll be a grand war, Jesus and all of the angels against Satan and all of the devils, and they will triumph, and Jesus will pull a double-edged sword out of his mouth and crazy stuff, because the book of Revelation is just wild. Um, this is it. This is the end. But we're not there yet. It is coming. We will get there. Jesus is coming back for round two, and, and in round two he will fulfill the rest of the messianic property pr or prophecies about like political conquest and restoring a perfect world and new jerusalem and a place where no tears will be shed and all pain will disappear but we're not there yet gotta wait and honestly like the early jews believed it could be any day like the early jewish societies they're like it could be tomorrow it could be the day after like in ad like 35 ad 50 People are still believing, you know, Jesus is coming back within their lifetimes. Obviously, 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. So, you know, the evidence has diminished somewhat. And our anticipation is supposed to be still fever pitch. Like, we're Christians are supposed to still, like, await Jesus at any moment. Um, but, you know, it's been a while. Lots of Christians have believed that it's going to be during their lifetimes, only to be sadly mistaken. Um but I also want to stress exactly how this shapes the world going forward. Um, Christians still see both the story of Exodus and this story of Jesus as being foundational to what they believe. 
Um, for them, the story of Exodus and the Passover celebration especially prefigures Christ's sacrifice. Um, the Passover is a type of Christ's sacrifice. It is like foreshadowing um, by God in history. Um, but for both Jews and Christians, the Exodus happened. And for Christians, Jesus lived and died and was resurrected. And keep in mind, like, there are very few academics who think that Jesus didn't exist. Like, this is recent enough that there are plenty of records that sort of buttress Jesus's life and teaching. Um, not just Josephus, who went into some detail about it, but also like our guy Livy, the one who, you know, gave us Ab Urbe Condita, the, the chunk of, you know, the Romulus and Remus and Aeneas that we read last last class he also mentions like in a throwaway line that like there's a bunch of unrest in judea um because of this jesus guy um which he can't figure out but like he doesn't care it's it's not a big deal um p.s it will become a big deal sorry libby um but at any rate the evidence seems to suggest that jesus was a person that he did exist whether or not he resurrected obviously this is where people typically disagree this is where we go from you know the believer to or unbeliever to believer or atheist to christian um it's complicated what i do want to stress though is that this is going to shape the like every bit of the western world um as much as christians seem like they should be just this fringe sect of judaism that should die out after a few years because you know there are tons of fringe sects of judaism that have this happen in the first and second centuries um due to the various messianic figures showing up it doesn't like it spreads like wildfire um in the 20 years after jesus dies like paul and other christians start evangelizing there is a message from jesus that they should all be making disciples of all nations um and therefore they do like they go everywhere they tell everybody about jesus and ch christian churches spring up throughout the roman world like even when nero is like like crapping down on on christians and killing them by in droves if anything it seems to only be sending more people to the faith um, this is not something that dissuades people from being Christians as much as the Roman authorities think that it should. For centuries, Roman emperors are going to try and like stamp out Christianity and they will be unsuccessful. It will just keep growing and becoming more and more influential, more and more powerful until finally Constantine declares, you know, I am a Christian and his sons will ultimately decide that this is going to be the official religion of the Roman empire. Um, it takes 300 years, like 250 if we're really being, you know, particular about it. It does not take long before this religion becomes the most powerful religion in the Roman Empire. And while this is also, you know, something that has, like, Rome has seen other religions come and go. Like, they worshipped Jupiter, and then they worshipped Mithra, the unconquered sun, and now they worship Jesus. But this one sticks around. Like, this one survives the Roman Empire. Rome falls to Christians and those Christians hang out with the Roman Christians and ultimately come to pretty substantial agreement about their faith. Um, those Christians will go on to found the papacy as we know it today. They will found the medieval regimes, the kingdoms of like the medieval period, as well as Charlemagne and the Carolingian Empire. Um, they will go on to make the nations that we know today, France and Spain and Germany and Italy and England and America, um, all of which were found under the auspices of Christianity. 
Um, like, this is not just the dominant religion in Europe for the 250 years of the Roman Empire after it's adopted, but for literally, like, 1,700 years, to the point that it is only now seeming to lose steam as atheism and sort of scientific naturalism is sort of supplanting it. Um, Christianity is the most influential myth in the history of Western culture, period, if not the history of the world, period. Um, it has had so much influence. And if it is just a passing dream, it's going to be a passing dream in a much broader scope than we are able to appreciate. Um, so I want to stress this. Um, I want to stress what this identity actually means in this case. Because while the Jews saw themselves as being basically like the little brother of God, like God picks fights for them and protects them in battle, for Christians, it's a completely different mindset and a completely different perspective. Um, Christians have a direct one-to-one -one relationship with God, the way that the Jews did not. But at the same time, um, these Christians see themselves as not being empire builders, as not being like pinned down to a particular nationality or a particular cultural identity. Christians can come from any nation. Um, where Jews had strict laws in place to prevent them from interacting with non-Jews, Christians are encouraged to seek out non-Christians and make them into Christians. Um, Christians have spread, like, transmission, evangelism, as one of the foundational tenets of their faith. That's how you worship, is you make more Christians. Um, not through, like, reproduction in the sense of like having kids um but in the sense of like going and finding people who don't believe what you believe and making them into christians um so what does that mean for the christian identity um it means that it's very different from most of the mythic like traditions that we've seen come before like the greeks see their identity as tied to their history um, the Romans see their identity as tied to their history. The Jews see their identity as tied to their culture, their nationality, in the same way that the Greeks and Romans also did, although in a very different respect to the gods. But the Christians dispense with their national identity. It is tied to history, but it is a history that is, them that it is themselves sort of adopted. They were not initially a part of it. Um, they're the inheritors of the Jewish promise in the same way that the Jews are, um, but they are the inheritors not through genetics or through historical lineage, but by faith. Um, they are the ideological inheritors as far as they are concerned. Um, so, but this also ties into like a whole bunch of other little historical details, stuff that we can't necessarily get into. Um, suffice it to say that one of the things that is most emphasized in Christian philosophy and theology, something that will, in fact, like make the world what it is today, is the fact that God isn't interested in obedience as much as he was before. Christians acknowledge the fact that they are fallen, that they are sinners. In fact, most Christians will understand that you cannot come to God except as a sinner. Um, Jesus saves you because you need to be saved. But what's more, as a result, this is incredibly liberating for Christians. Um, they are not under the Jewish law. Like, sure, they're supposed to obey most of the major Jewish laws and they're supposed to observe it, but they do not need to, 
like hold to the traditions of the Jewish people. Christianity conforms to traditions, not the other way around. It does not force people to follow the same traditions. It says, you keep your traditions, but do it for Christ. Um, so they will basically adopt many pagan traditions and say, okay, just do it for Jesus now. Um, that's fine. And that means that it's flexible. That means that it spreads quickly. It also means that it affords for a lot of people to do interesting things within the confines of the religion. Uh, Christianity is open to the idea of science as a separate area of pursuit. You can be a Christian and a scientist at the same time, as much as you may disagree with that statement in the last hundred years, because both science and Christianity have sort of become polar antagonists. Um, but that means that like the national powers that exist, the ambition that many Christians have shown, that is within the scope of Christianity. It is not opposed to their ideas. Christianity frequently changes to change to fit the historical needs at the time. It's a political force when it needs to be political. It is just a religious force when po other political bodies are sort of taking the front seat. It is necessarily reactionary and revolutionary, but it is also it also conforms to a status quo. It is incredibly flexible. If anything, the Christian identity is not having an identity. They can be whatever they want, um, as long as they recognize that Jesus is their savior and that they should do likewise, that they should be self-sacrificing, that they should give themselves to others. Um, so as a conclusion for these two weeks of identity myths, I wanna stress that much of what defines these cultures, these religions, these peoples is bound up with who they see themselves as being. You are liberators. You fought against the Persian slavers and you successfully broke free and now you are guaranteeing a place for all forms of government like the Greeks. Or you were conquerors like the Romans. Or you are believers like the Jews and the Christians indebted 100% to your God or to your savior. How you behave, the myths that you tell afterwards, the stories that you tell afterwards, the way you govern your empires afterwards will be shaped by how these myths define you. You are the myths that you tell in a very real sense. Um, and if you take nothing else away from these two weeks, that's what I want to stress. We are the product of the stories we tell ourselves. Um, we are who we believe ourselves to be. And when those stories change, the culture changes along with it. Now for next week, we're going to switch gears again. We're going to have one week of heroic myths. We're going to talk about Jason and the Argonauts next time, and we're going to talk about Heracles in the session afterwards. And then it's midterm time, so I hope you've got that like on the back burner there, that you were aware that we are rapidly approaching the midterm. Um, we will have a lecture of midterm review in addition to the usual midterm review. Like we'll have our lecture and our class sessions, um, so don't worry about that. For next time, read Jason and the Argonauts, the myth of Perseus, the myth of Bellerophon. I want to say there's another one in there that I'm forgetting. Whatever it is, check the Canvas page. It will all be listed there. We'll talk about Jason next time.